God, we, uh, we find ourselves in different places this morning, um, but all of us having one thing in common, uh, a need for you, a need for redemption, a need for hope, a need for cleansing from our sin, from our fallenness, and from our separation from you. And so God, may you come and be present. May your spirit be powerful. May you move in our hearts. May we look intently at your word and give it the primacy and authority in our lives that it rightly deserves. May you humble us and open our ears and soften our hearts. And may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. Amen. Uh, We're going to be in John 13, verse 31 through 38. Um, If you want, there's a Bible in front of you, a red one. You can pick that up, or we're going to have it up on the screen for you, so whichever is easier. But uh, as we get started, uh, there's a question that sometimes people ask one another, kind of one of those get-to-know-you icebreaker questions. They often say, if you could have dinner with any three people, who would you have dinner with? And people pick all these historical figures, and people think of Abraham Lincoln, or George Washington, or maybe even Socrates, or, or now even someone like Steve Jobs. Like, people pay $800,000 to have lunch with Warren Buffett as, as it's auctioned off. I mean, there's these dinner guests that go to the top of our list of who we would love to conversate with. What's fascinating about our passage today is that it is a dinner conversation with Jesus. Is it's dinner with Jesus. We get to listen in. We get to hear a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as they get to eat with God, as they get to converse, as they get to talk And Jesus knows what's in front of him. He knows what the next 36 hours will behold for him. And he's having his last meal with his followers, with his disciples. And they have a great conversation. And like any good meal, think of a good meal that you've had with friends or with a great stimulating conversation. You don't necessarily want it to end because the conversation is rich. It's meaningful. It's significant. And I would argue that if there was any dinner I could have ever been at, I would have wanted to be at this one. To listen into the conversation, to hear the tone of Jesus' voice, to look into his eyes as he said these things. But we get the privilege of John writing these things down so that you and I can come into that moment, so you and I can enter in to what it was like for them. Now, if you remember, Drew was preaching last week on Judas, and Judas finally, after three years of following Jesus, being exposed as a fraud as a phony, as someone who was disingenuous, of not a true believer or follower of Christ. And finally, uh, his motives were sussed out, and Jesus revealed who he really was. And our passage starts out, if you look at it in verse 31, with Judas running out. And as Judas, Judas goes out, you can imagine the shock that the rest of the disciples might have had. Can you just imagine someone you've walked with, someone you've eaten meals with, someone you've uh, spent years and years with, all of a sudden finding out they're not who they said they were. I imagine for a lot of them, their jaws hit the floor. But really what was taking place is with Judas leaving, God's plan of redemption, Jesus' final purpose had been set in motion. In some ways, the machine of Jesus' destiny had been irreversibly started. The first domino had fallen, and what was going to take place was now going to take place. The events of the next 36 hours were set in motion. So this is incredibly significant because Jesus still has some important things to say to his disciples. 
Look at verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Son of Man, what does this mean? If you're not a Christian, or maybe you haven't heard this term before, or maybe you just haven't spent a lot of time reading Daniel, this would have made incredible sense to the followers of Jesus. They would have immediately thought about the book of Daniel because this is a loaded title. Here's what the prophet Daniel said hundreds of years ago using the title Son of Man. He wrote this, And to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Did you catch the three things that he said there? Daniel's telling us that this son of man is a ruler, not just a ruler that will rule for a certain period of time, or if you're a good country, you maybe get a couple hundred years or a couple thousand years, but this is a ruler that will rule forever. This is an everlasting ruler, far beyond one place in time, far beyond the context there of even Rome, but this is a ruler who will always rule, and this ruler will rule in great splendor and majesty and significance. And this ruler will have a people, a people that belong to him, a people that have been bought by him. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows the significance of what he's saying when he says he is the son of man. He is this ruler. He is this one who deserves splendor. And he is the one who will bring and buy a people based on his work. So glorify. What what does that mean? What does it mean? When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Glorified, that's not a word we we use in everyday language. It's not something that usually comes up in our conversation. But we understand it at a very core, visceral level. We understand what it means to glorify in something. I mean, the the Greek word there is doxadzo. Doxadzo. And what it means is to, to esteem, to exalt to find great joy in magnifying and considering and, 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 and meditating upon and speaking about it constantly. We are all glory machines. Day and night, we go through life meditating on things or other people or situations or accomplishments or ourselves. We glory in things. We, we can't help it because we're made to glory in something. And because God is, is loving He points us to glorify in the very thing that will bring us the most satisfaction. And how exactly is Jesus going to be glorified? He'll be glorified in the most paradoxical way. He'll be glorified by going to a cross and suffering a humiliating death. A death that that was altogether unfitting for anyone who would consider themselves a king or a ruler. But yet, Jesus says that he will be glorified through it. Why? Why? Why would Jesus be glorified through such an awful, horrific event? One that would involve mocking and being spit upon and having thorns crushed into his skull and beaten within an inch of his life and then hung upon a tree so that all could mock and laugh at him as he gasped for his last breath. How could that ever be glorifying? Jesus is coming and Jesus hangs upon a cross because he comes to show us, as we've been looking at for almost a year now, he comes to show us who God really is is. For thousands of years since Genesis 3, God has been concealed from his people. He has not been fully revealed. He has not been fully known. His presence, his glory has had to stay at a distance from his people because he's holy. And a holy God in the face of sinful people is not possible. 
And so we've seen a measure of God. We've seen God's law written on tablets. We've seen God tabernacling with his people in which one man would be able to go into his presence one time a year for one minute. But Jesus says, I've come to reveal what's been concealed. I've come to show you all definitively who God is. I want you to see, I want you to understand who God is. This is what um, the great Anglican theologian from the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, wrote. He wrote, The crucifixion brought glory to the Son. It glorified his compassion, his patience, his power. It showed him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our place, allowing himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, buying our redemption with a price of his own blood. It showed him most patient in dying a common, humiliating death. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all the world's transgressions, vanquishing Satan and despoiling of his prey. Jesus is being glorified through an act that looks altogether humiliating and devastating. Amazing. Life-changing. Universe-altering. Not only is Jesus glorified, but God is glorified as well. So Jesus and God the Father are mutually glorifying one another. They're pointing to one another. God is being glorified in the work of Jesus Christ because God the Father is the one who put these events into motion. He is the one through his sovereign plan decided that this would be the path for Jesus. That Jesus would be the perfect substitute of redemption in the place of you and I. So that you and I would not have to suffer a humiliating death. So you and I would not have to remain separated from God. So that you and I would not get what we deserve, but Jesus would get what we deserve. And rather we would get his righteousness and we would be able to walk with God. This is good news. And in it, In all of this, Jesus is being glorified and God is being glorified. J.C. Ryle, once again, let's listen to him. This is what he says. The Father is glorified because his wisdom and his faithfulness and his holiness is being displayed. It showed him faithful in keeping his promises and the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head. It showed him holy and requiring his law's demands to be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed God the Father loving and providing such a mediator, such a redeemer. And as Paul writes in Romans 3.26, that the, the justifier, the just would be the justifier, that God, being the one who is ultimately just, would also come and be our justifier. Guys, think about this. This is altogether amazing. Jesus knows this is what's in front of him. Jesus knows this is what he's about to face. But he knows he's able to push through the pain that's in front of him, the humiliation that's in front of him, the incredible trial, much greater than any trial I will ever experience or you will ever experience because he knows what waits him on the other side. Jesus' resurrection, which, you know, sometimes we don't talk about the resurrection enough. We act as if resurrection is something we talk just about on Easter. But in reality, as Christians, we're resurrection people. That's why we worship on Sundays. The good news, the culmination of the gospel is the resurrection. It shows that Jesus is who he says he is. That he really does rule and reign over death. That he has defeated death. That he has put death to death. And he rules and he reigns. In his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. It vindicates who he is. It vindicates what he said about himself. It shows that his signs were just a foretaste of what is coming. And if you want to know 
what, what this world's going to look like when Jesus comes back. Look at his signs. Look at his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And every time you walk through life and you feel pain and you feel loneliness and you feel sorrow and you wonder when will it get better, it will get better. God will redeem it. It's not purposeless. It's not unredemptive. God will use your suffering. He will use your trials. He will use your pain for good for those who love him, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. Why does this matter? Well, 2 Corinthians tells us that Satan does everything he can to keep you and I from looking at the glory that is found in Jesus Christ. Satan wants nothing more than for you to forget about the glory of Jesus Christ that's found in his work on the cross. Satan is completely fine with church buildings full of people who sing songs and do good deeds, but see no need to speak of a bloody cross. The demons celebrate every time churches feed the hungry, engage in social work, but neglect and remain silent on Jesus' substitutionary death to free us from death and sin. The cross, the cross is absolutely central to what it means to follow Jesus, to submit to Jesus, to come under his authority. This is what the glory is. If you want to know what Jesus thinks of his glory, look no further than the cross. Verse 33, Jesus becomes very kind. And I love the tone he strikes here, especially as a dad. I think about this all the time. He says, he says little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Little children. Once again, imagine John. Imagine these disciples. They've been walking with Jesus for a couple of years, and all of a sudden, Jesus changes his tone, and he becomes incredibly tender. This word, little children, it's, it's, it's the Greek word, technia. And this word is used mainly by John. It's used here in the Gospel of John, and then it's used in his later letter, 1 John. In fact, in 1 John, it's used multiple times. John kind of picks it up in 1 John as his favorite way to speak of his church, to speak of his people, to speak of his flock with great tenderness and compassion and love. Little children, incredibly affectionate, incredibly kind, just how a mom or a dad is with their child. Come to me. Think of Jesus' words where he even said, little, little children, come to me. I love little kids. They're first in the kingdom of heaven. Kids have great priority. Kids, Jesus loves you. Jesus has a soft heart for you. Jesus wants you to know who he is. Jesus wants you to follow him. Jesus wants you to trust him. And Jesus cares deeply about you. What Jesus is saying, though, is that he's going somewhere because, because he has to. And where he's going, you and I cannot follow because he's going to the cross. And yes, you and I can die. In fact, not only can we, all of us will. The death rate's still 100%. But Jesus is, what he's saying is, we don't need to be martyrs. To follow Jesus, you don't have to strap bombs to yourself and go blow something up. You don't have to suffer a martyr death, although some will. And some of our brothers and sisters, especially in this world today, they do suffer a martyr's death. And we should regularly be praying for them and considering them. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm altogether uniquely and distinctly qualified to go to the cross. 
See, if, if I die, my death does not atone for anyone's sin because I have not lived a perfect life. In fact, all my death would pay for is all of my sin because I have a whole bunch of it because I'm far from perfect because I deserve what my sin has merited from God. But Jesus' death, where Jesus is going, Jesus going to the cross, what makes it altogether distinct, and have you ever thought about this? There were literally hundreds of thousands of people crucified in the ancient world. Nero, one of the most cruel men who ever lived, used to line the roads with crucified people and then light them on fire so that people would have a lit path to his parties. What makes this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, what makes his crucifixion altogether different? What makes it distinct? What makes it unique? It's because he alone was qualified to go where he went. Friends, you and I can't save anyone. You and I, we're not anyone's savior. And I know that can be hard because there's times where we think we're more capable than we really are, that we we think of our loved ones or even our family members or people we would love to meet Jesus. And and there can feel a, a strong weight that somehow the responsibility lands on us, but ultimately it's Jesus who saves. And the people that your heart breaks for, Jesus' heart breaks for them all the more. You've heard the phrase before, and it's in some ways from this passage, but the cross was his cross to bear. We all have our cross to bear, but the cross of Christ was uniquely his. And it shows that Jesus' mission was always, always, always going to end up at the cross. Just think about the disciples, though. Continue. I, I just want us to remain in this, this moment, this dinner with Jesus, considering, thinking, being, being in that room. You're hearing this. You're hearing Jesus continue to say these things, and there's a part of you that wants to say no, wants to push back, wants to say this can't be. Jesus, why, why, why? I mean, can't we gather an army? Can't we get a militia? Can't we stockpile some guns? Uh, Whatever it might be, can't you call down some angels? Why? Why Why are you talking this way, Jesus, about a horrific, humiliating death? And plus, here's the truth, too, and I don't know if you guys have ever felt this way. Wouldn't it be nice— to have Jesus physically present? I mean, it'd be great. Like, you just call Jesus up and be like, hey, Friday was tough. Can you come over and chill? Like, i got some things I want to talk to you about. Like, some requests, some problems. Uh, Jesus, come over. Let's, let's hang. But imagine for them, they've actually hung with Jesus. They've spent time with Jesus, and now they're beginning to understand that Jesus is going to leave. What are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? Well, Jesus makes it clear. I'm leaving and what I'm going to say next is altogether the most important thing that you can hear. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I, I gave you guys a good definition for what love is. Because there's all sorts of different ways and distortions and even ideas that you and I bring to the table about what love is. But when the Bible speaks about love, and you guys have probably heard this word before, it's a Greek word a lot of us know, the word used here is agape. And this is a selfless, altogether sacrificial love. A love that serves, a love that pours itself out, a love that's willing to humiliate and humble itself. I mean, think about this. Once again, go back to the room. Be there. Don't don't leave. Don't just push right past this because we're familiar with the passage. Okay? What did Jesus do just, just literally a half an hour before we're reading this? 
He washed their stinking feet. He washed their dirty, nasty feet. And now he's saying, love one another as I have loved you. You've got to think the very first thing they're thinking of is, how did Jesus love me? Well, Jesus got down and he washed my feet. Jesus got down and he served me. Jesus got down in a humiliating position and took the posture of a lowly servant to love me. Notice, too, it says a new commandment. Not a suggestion, not a good idea, not a piece of advice, not a, hey, things might go better for you, but a command. A command. Who is this man to issue commands? Well, he's the God of the universe. He's God in the flesh. He's flexing and demonstrating his authority, and he's giving a new command. It's interesting, too, especially for Jews. This probably would have been like altogether almost, you ever have one of those moments um, I don't know, I don't have much of it in me, but if you're like OCD and people start moving your stuff around, you start to just freak out a little bit. Um, I imagine it was a lot like that for some of these people because they're used to living by 612 rules. And all of a sudden, Jesus is coming in and he's saying, like, just love each other. Love. Now, that raises a good question. Is Jesus getting rid of all of what the Old Testament said? Now, in some ways, he's summarizing it. He's encapsulating it. Because think of you into the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. You know, those things. All of those, actually, are really saying love one another. Because you don't commit adultery if you're loving your neighbor, you're loving your wife, and you're loving others. In fact, it's a very unloving thing to do. Don't steal. Well, you don't steal from people you love. Don't lie. Well, you don't lie to people you love. He's summing up even all of the laws from the Old Testament. He's summing up the Ten Commandments. That if you love, all of those things will follow. All of those things will be true. Love. Love. A sacrificial love. A love that takes the posture of a servant. A love that's willing to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but one that's willing to humble ourselves to serve others for their good, at our expense even. Not just when it's easy, not just when they're nice to us, not just when it's convenient, but to love them and to continue to love them, to love them with a nonstop, everlasting love. And do you notice, I mean, this is, this is incredible because we're talking about the guy who made the universe. We're talking about the guy who made people. So he's got some good insight on how life should be lived, right? Like we love life coaches, we love experts, we love people to tell us how life will function well. Well, how about we listen to the guy who made humans? He probably has some good insight into how we should live. Notice what he says here about love. This love is for people. It's for people. Um, many of you are familiar with the band Mumford and & Sons, and they have a, a lyric that always just sticks out to me. It says, where you invest your love, you invest your life. And it's a beautiful summation, even of what I think Jesus is saying here is, invest your life on people. Remember, what did Jesus say when he summed up the Old Testament? Once again, he says, love God, love people. Love God, love people. Um, It's a helpful exercise, even a mental one to do. But think about when you wake up in the morning and where you spend a lot of your energy and your effort, your concerns, your job, your responsibility, your stuff, I mean, just think of putting a post-it note on it to remind yourself that it's temporary. Your job's temporary. 
your stuff's temporary, the things you're working so hard for, your, even your education, it's temporary. The only thing that lasts are the investment that you make in people. People are eternal. People are made by God. Spend your life, pour yourself out for people. I promise you, you won't regret it. It's an investment that has better returns than anything you'll get in a wayward stock market, any type of education, any type of career. Pouring yourself out for people, loving others, will always lead to everlasting joy. How we love, though, also declares and shows deeply that we follow Jesus. How we love that we're willing to love even when we don't feel like it is often the most powerful moments of when we're going to grow in our sanctification. If we only love when we feel like it or when it's convenient, we will be stunted in our spiritual growth. You'll be stunted in your relationship with God. Where God shows up is when we are weakest. Where God shows up is when you've reached the end of yourself. Where God shows up to meet you and to serve you and to convict you and to grow you is when you are empty. But yet we don't love because it's convenient. We live with love because it's covenantal, because it's the way that God told us to love. And what else about love? Love meets us at our very worst. Think once again of washing dirty, stinky, desert feet. This is not the disciples at their best. It's them at their worst. And God loves you at your worst. And if, if you're a follower of Jesus, God's love intervened and found you when you were at your worst. You weren't at your best. You didn't turn in your resume. You weren't a shining star. You weren't valedictorian. You weren't, I mean, you weren't selected because you were great. You were selected because God has kindness for you. Because God loves you and he met you in your brokenness and he met you at your worst. And if you're not a Christian, God will meet you right where you're at. And we're so glad you're here. And this is a safe place for you to hear and receive and come in to the love that Jesus has for you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you even think of yourself. Listen to what God thinks of you. Receive and accept and embrace the love that God has for you. I, my biggest prayer for redemption is that we grow in being a church of love. Grow in being a church of love. Uh, my, my, myself, I, this is my propensity. Um, I can sometimes conflate knowledge and information and even biblical study with relationship and, and spiritual growth with Jesus. James half-brother of Jesus, he would write later on his epistle that even the demons have incredible insight and understanding of who God is, but yet they hate God. The demons know way more theology than I do. They have a way better understanding of who God is. The demons have a way better understanding of who God is than you do, and yet they hate God. Your theology can be as clear as ice and twice as cold. The truth is, is that Love God, love people is as simple as can be for even a toddler to understand, but it's as profound and difficult for even the most mature follower of Jesus to embrace and live out. I think Drew talked about it a couple weeks ago, but 
In the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to the church of Ephesus and he says, you guys have all the right answers. You have all the right systematic theologies. You have all the good Bible studies. Um, you have a great catechism. You're doing great in all of your content. But there's no love. So you may as well just get up and beat a clanging gong to your city, to your neighbors, and to one another. If, if lives are going to be changed, if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to see each other grow, if we're going to reach our city, if we are going to love our neighbors, we must first and foremost start by loving one another. Notice it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus is saying we must love one another. Imagine what a shift this is for those disciples once again. Think about this. Jesus is basically telling them, a lot of you thought by following me what it was going to mean is that you were going to get to rule over everyone else. That eventually we were going to ascend in political position and stature and prominence. But really, what it's going to mean for you to follow me is you're going to humbly love people. You're not going higher, you're going lower. It's true. It's true for us. Love one another, though. That one another, we can't miss this. And I know I'm spending a lot of time here on, this passage, on these verses, but they're, they're so pivotal. They're so significant. There's so much good stuff in here. Stay with me through this. One another. Who's this one another? This one another is quite specific. It's speaking of God's family. It's speaking of God's people. That's why the church, we love this building. We're glad we get to meet here. But if this building burns down, we will find a dirt lot to meet in the following week. Because the church, the church is not an organization. The church is a family. The church is a people that are brought together, that are bought by Jesus, and they love one another. This one another is speaking of the church. It's speaking of God's people. Jesus expects us, he's commanding you and me that we would love the church with the same strength, with the same depth, with the same intensity that Jesus loves you. And notice it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's a direct reflection of your changed identity and your new nature. In fact, Jesus says in verse 35, by this, by, by the way you love one another, by the living out of this command, by loving one another, by the church loving the church, by being a loving community, by this, this, this will be the authenticator, this will be the verification. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That if, that, that it's, it, you can almost feel it hanging you can feel it hanging. It's saying, if, 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 if you love one another, that's how the world will know. That will be the verification. That will be the authentication that your faith is real, that your faith is genuine, that your faith is true. Think of um, entire, entire industries that have processes to authenticate and to verify. I mean, every time you use a a credit card of sorts. They're, they're verifying by little chips now in the credit card. And I don't even know how to work the machine half the time, but it's, it's a verification process. Or, or in the autograph industry, if you're a memorabilia or a sports person, you want a verification or an authentication certificate to come along with that signature to show that it's the real deal. Or if you work at a bank, you spend all day long authenticating and verifying that the funds or the money you're dealing with is the real deal. And the way the church is authenticated, the way we are verified as followers of Jesus, 
is by the way that we love one another. Disciples, what does that word mean? That, that word really, it, it, it simply means someone who's following Jesus. There goes Jesus, there goes me. Jesus says, go over here, love these people. I'm going over there, I'm loving these people. Jesus says, go serve, I'm going to go serve. Jesus says, to, to pray, I'm praying. Jesus says, I go. That's disciple. That's why he's connecting it to an action. Are you really a disciple? Is Jesus really your treasure? Have you really been changed by Jesus? I don't want anyone to fool themselves, and I don't say this because I want to be harsh or want to be mean-spirited. I say this because I want to love you by being clear, by telling you what God's Word actually says. Love, love is an act of worship, and when you and I love one another, we bring, it's an act of worship. We're showing others who we believe God really is. Um, I use this example all the time, and I'm just going to use it again, even though it's a little tougher now. I love Chipotle, even though I've had some tough times recently. Love Chipotle. Um, but when I tell people, well, when I used to tell people about Chipotle, not now, but when I used to tell them about Chipotle, it was a way for me to, in some ways, glorify Chipotle. I would sing the praises of Chipotle. I'd be like, oh, you got to try their barbecue burrito, and you got to try the chicken burrito. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And you wax on about whatever it might be. And when you're doing that, you're bringing glory to it. You're worshiping it. And when we love something, when we love others, we are worshiping God. Our love is not just a service that we give to others, but our love is a worship act to the God we serve. Love is also an act of prophecy. It's you speaking into the future of the way things will be. Yes, I get it. This world is broken. Yes, I get it that people will let you down. Yes, I get it that you've been betrayed. But we are beginning to live out and practice a new ethic, a new reality now that will one day be universal, that will one day be true for everyone in all places. So love is also a acting into the future. It's an act of trust that God is good, and I can trust him even when it's hard, and I can love even when it's difficult. If you don't love one another, And I'm not saying that there's not hard times. I'm not even saying there's not difficult people to love. But if you look around at the church, if you look around at the people, the Christians that God's placed in your life, and you don't love them, if you don't want good for them, if you're not willing to sacrifice for them, if you're not willing to serve them, if you're not willing to pour yourself out for them, I just ask you, why? Are you really a follower of Jesus? And it's not me saying that. It's verse 35 saying, if you love one another, this is how we will know you're a true follower of Jesus. This is a huge deal to John. In fact, I think this verse, I, mean, I, I could be wrong, so, so just bear with me a little bit, okay? But I think this verse, this new command, shaped almost the rest of John's ministry. Why do I say that? Well, I want to show you some verses from 1 John. Once again, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, later on wrote another letter. And the letter is, is, is saturated by these, this same theme. Verses are up there behind you, but this is what it says. Just let these verses wash over you. This is such a big deal to John. I think we can't miss it. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you love, it shows that you've been regenerated. It shows that you've been born again. Your love, in some ways, once again, is a verification that you truly know God. And I'm not talking know God in a, I, I got a bunch of information, but know God and I've encountered him. I've, I've met the risen God. Here's an illustration. Um, I didn't plan to say this, so 
but it's important, okay? If, if I was to walk in here and I said, this morning, um, I lit off a stick of dynamite in my hand. How many of you would be skeptical or dubious of that claim? Okay, thank you. I would be very dubious. In fact, I'd be like, I don't think so. Now, why would you be dubious? Why would you be skeptical of that claim? Because my hand's still here, right? Because my hand's not missing. John is saying much the same thing. If you've really met the God of the universe, if you've really met the most powerful being in all of the universe, and there's no change, that seems strange. That makes me question. That makes me wonder. When you encounter something that's powerful, when you're in the presence of something that's powerful, it will have a radical change on who you are, and there should be proof of that. How much more powerful is Jesus than a stick of dynamite? How much more transition and change and transformation should take place in the life of someone who's met the God of the universe over one stick of dynamite? God changes us. God makes us new. And our life is a testament to that very thing. We know, going back to these verses, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Brothers is always used in a generic term there to be men or women. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Once again, here's the evidence. And are who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So once again, love, loving others, is a verification of our transformation. And last, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You guys sensing a theme here? I think it's pretty clear. Just think about it this way. I, I, I'll move on. I just want to belabor this for one more moment. If a husband or a wife doesn't want to be with their family, are we right to say, oh, well, deep in his heart, deep in his intentions, uh, deep in his feelings, he loves his family? Well, absolutely not. We would completely question that claim. But if a husband is committed or a wife is committed to their family through difficulty and disappointment, and even when there's hurt, we would say, yes, there's genuine fruit, there's genuine evidence, there's genuine proof that they really do love their family. The love is matched by true actions. Love isn't just paying the bills or lip service or giving a tithe even to a church. Love is being committed and saying, I'm in and I'm for you regardless of what comes next. Love is hard. I get this. And here's, here's the fine line I walk as I preach this, okay? And, and so give me grace. I'm just asking you guys to help me out here. Here's the fine line I walk in this. I'm not saying that you love your way into heaven. I'm not saying you love enough, you love strong enough, you muster up love, and that makes God love you. In fact, that gets it all wrong. But what I am saying is that because he first loved us, we love others. The priority of that is altogether absolutely the most important thing that you have to hear. Because you've been loved by God, that love transforms and changes you. And that love fuels and affects and makes it possible for you to love others. And sometimes loving others is, is incredibly hard. And sometimes loving others is difficult. And I want to be sensitive to that. I realize there's people in this room today that loving others seems like a gargantuan task. What I would say to you is, is just like for the non-believer in this room, the invitation is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Trust that Jesus is good. Trust that the way that he, he tells us to live is true and right. That we would repent even of our unbelief, that we would repent of our lack of love, and we would ask Jesus to do a new work in us. And so I, I talk to folks all the time, and some folks would tell me, I just feel stagnant, I feel spiritually dry, I feel frustrated, I just feel, I feel stunted in what God is doing in my life. What I would say is, continue to press on. Continue to love. Continue to pour yourself out, even when it's hard, even when you feel worn out, even when you feel tired, because God will meet you there. God will be faithful. God will love you. And God will continue to be gracious to you. There is a big difference between communion and union. And understanding this is really important. Communion and union. When you become a Christian, you're united to Christ. That means you're now alive in Christ. You have a life inside of Christ, and nothing you can do can separate you from Christ. But communion's different. Communion is the, at times, even the, the emotive feeling that we have in our intimacy and connection with God. And that can vacillate, that can fluctuate, that can change. All throughout the New Testament, actually, and sometimes we skip right over these verses and we don't pay attention to them, but Ephesians 5.10, Colossians 1.10, Hebrews 13.16, all tell us that our communion with God can fluctuate based on our willingness to obey and follow the commandments of Jesus. All of them remind us that God takes great pleasure in our obedience. Once again, think about marriage. My wife, bless her heart, we're united, we're one. And when we got married, we decided we're in this together forever. No way, no how are we leaving. We're covenanted together. So we're united. That union won't change based on if I mess up or based on if I'm a lousy husband for a while. It's not going to change. But you know what? Our communion can change. If I treat my wife poorly, if I'm not attentive, if I don't listen to her, if I'm not kind, if I'm harsh with her, you think we're going to have intimacy? You think we're going to feel good about one another? You think we're going to feel close to one another? Absolutely not. And so when you think of spiritual disciplines, what you need to think of is that these are the things in your life that God is using to stoke your communion inside of your union. The same way people work on their marriage by spending more time investing in their communion to strengthen their union. You've got to understand these things. It's all throughout the Bible and it's clear. And so we have to preach it and we have to say it because it's right. But bottom line, understand the order, okay? Because Christ has loved us, we are free and empowered to love him. And out of that love leads us to love others. But any dinner, any meal, just wouldn't be complete without impetuous Peter, right? Peter, Peter's one of my favorite characters in all of the New Testament because he always shows up and Peter always has, in some ways he reminds me of, of my, my little girl Grace who's five right now. Who, Grace just always says what everyone else is thinking. Um, in any room, she just says what everyone else is thinking and she just says it loud and proud. And Peter's much the same way. He just says what everyone else is thinking in some ways. What I love about Peter is he's a little bit hung up on what Jesus is saying. Here's what he says. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Notice, Jesus doesn't necessarily respond and tell him exactly where he's going, but Peter still inquires. Peter wants to know, Jesus, where are you going? What does this all mean? I'm still a little confused. If anything, I think what Peter is, is Peter's in a little bit of denial. 
It's just the same way when, when, when a loved one goes off to the airport or if you're a mom or dad and you're leaving for the day and your kids want to know, where are you going? Because I want to be with you and I'm sad that you're leaving. I think Peter is a little distraught. He's coming to terms with this. That's why he says, Lord, can, can, I, can I not follow you? Can I come with you? Jesus, I want to come with you. I will lay down my life. That's what Peter says. Peter's, he's talking a big game, but he really doesn't know what he's talking about. Peter reminds me of the, the incredibly boisterous athlete, the one who makes promises, guarantees about the game they're going to win, the performance they're going to have. Here's what Jesus says. This is awesome. And there's, there's just this level of skepticism all over it. Verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will crow till you have denied me three times. The cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's what's going on. Peter has an overinflated sense of who he is and what he's able to do. And Jesus knows Peter even better than Peter knows himself. And that's true for you and for me. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows our capabilities. He knows our capacities way better than we know ourselves. What does Paul actually tell us once again in Romans? He tells us, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but soberly assess yourself. Be willing to consider that you might not know yourself and your capacities and your abilities as much as you think you do. Be willing to listen to others. Be willing to allow others to speak into your life. Peter doesn't know himself that well. But he does have a God who knows him perfectly. And this God is willing to speak into his life. This God is willing to tell him the truth, even when the truth will hurt, even when the truth will be hard for him to hear. One of the things that makes it most possible for us to love is for us to humbly assess ourselves. And what I mean by humbly, that means even what we think we know about ourselves, we hold it loosely. We don't form an identity based on all the things we think we're capable of, but rather we allow the Holy Spirit through those around us, our brothers and sisters, to speak the truth into our life. And we humbly listen. We don't need to be defensive. We don't need to have an inflative sense of who we are, but rather we can repent and we can be humble and we can receive the truth that Jesus, that, that's being spoken in love. The funny thing is, is that I think what Jesus is saying is you're just not ready, Peter. You're not ready. So this is Jesus' incredible grace for Peter. He's saying, Peter, you have no idea what you're in store for. There's incredible persecution and hardship and trial that's about to unfold, and you have no idea. It's like sending someone off to war that's had no basic training or equipping whatsoever. And here's what I'll tell you. God, God is always using the things in your life right now to equip and prepare you for what's to come. And sometimes we get so blinded by the moment and what we're feeling and what we're going through, we can't possibly believe that or consider that. But think about your life. Think about it up to this point. How many times has God used a painful moment, experience, or hard season to prepare you for where you're at now? Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you're not ready. And this isn't an insult. This isn't a dig at Peter. In fact, he's saying, Peter, what's going to happen over the next 36 hours will actually get you ready for what you're going to do next. You will be one of the early church leaders. You will found many churches. You will lead many people to Christ. You will get up at Pentecost and you will preach your guts out and people 
will be saved. And then 30 years from now, you will die a martyr's death. But not today. You're not ready yet. Stay humble, Peter. You and I, we should stay humble. On our own, you and I, we can do nothing that glorifies God. On our own, we are not capable of earning our way to heaven. But because Jesus died and because Jesus rose again, because Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, he's worthy of our worship, and he's poured out his Holy Spirit on you and I to make us able. So two last things, and then then I'll, I'll stop. Two things, two implications that I really want you guys to to just consider, okay? You may not die a martyr's death, but will you die daily for your brothers and sisters? Will you die to yourself? Will you die to your ambitions? Will you die to your preferences? Will you die to your priorities for those around you? For those that God has called you to love? In some ways, We can often even almost glamorize someone who dies for their faith, and I'm not trying to minimize that. But it's equally important that you and I would live for our faith. That we would live out what it means to follow Jesus. That we would love one another, even when it's hard. That we would sacrifice, that we would give ourselves. Paul also says this same thing in Romans 12. He says, pour your life out as a living sacrifice. Seems like a contradiction, right? Usually sacrifices are dead. But Paul's saying, be a living sacrifice. So will you be a living sacrifice? Will you pour yourself out? Not just die for your faith, but will you live for your faith? And because of that, because of that, who is Jesus calling you in this church to love? Who's he calling you to humbly serve? Who's he calling you to humbly bless? I think if all of us changed our perspective and walked around and if we, we just saw a need and we met a need, realizing that we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We looked around and we saw someone who needed to be hugged or prayed for or, in, or introduce ourselves to. We saw a need and we decided to meet a need. Just love each other in very practical, simple ways. And for a lot of you, I know you want this. And here's how I know you want this, because you have the Holy Spirit inside you, so you're made for this. And so that's how I know and because of that, here's what I'll say. If, if you're a part of redemption or you're just getting connected to redemption, all of us, let's, let's make it a priority this week to deepen one relationship. Deepen just one relationship. Is there someone in your life group, a couple maybe, that you could invite over for dinner? Is there someone that you've been circling around and you guys have been operating similar social settings that you could call up and have a cup of coffee with? that you could encourage, that you could reach out. We all have so many good intentions, but our good intentions are not good enough. Love is a verb, and it must be put into action. So take one intention and put it into action inside of redemption this week.